This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. With me today for my 265th podcast is University of Houston Professor Josiah Rector to discuss his recently published University of North Carolina Press book, Toxic Debt, an Environmental Justice History of Detroit. Professor Rector, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Professor Rector's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. Briefly on background, having in March accused HHS of environmental and institutional racism, I read Professor Rector's work, moreover, as a failure by federal, state, and local government officials to regulate the auto industry's extremely harmful environmental and consequential human health effects. This failure is substantially explained by the replacement of, though imperfect, New Deal legislation with neoliberal policies, including austerity, disenfranchisement, financial deregulation, globalization, and tax and welfare reforms. Regarding neoliberalism, for example, the listener may want to reference or check Gary Gerstel's The Rise and Fall of the Neoliberal Order, recently published by Oxford. As a result, Professor Rector documents largely post-World War II consequences experienced by Detroit's African-American community. Beyond low wages and ghettoization, Detroit's African-Americans have disproportionately suffered adverse health consequences via industrial, i.e. auto, policies that knowingly cause unrelieved exposure to toxic air and water, think Flint, and more recently health harms resulting from the denial of domestic water services that Professor Rector terms the dehydration of Detroit. In sum, this pattern of structural violence has been termed by Detroit activists, Rector cites, as a form of racial genocide. With me again to discuss his work, Toxic Debt, is Professor Rector. So with that, as somewhat briefly, uh, brief background, uh, let's let's get into this. Um, the work goes, you, you do more or less begin uh, environmental issues or concerns uh, in Michigan, Detroit, in the late 19th century. You talk about use of certain uh, coal use, uh, led to an 1887 smoke ordinance, Considering the amount of, of substances vibe, could you just provide a brief overview of, say, environmental issues, concerns, say, up till, uh, say, 1929? And that, I think, would help set the stage for where we go after that, because, as you note, um, in 1929 or before the Depression mm-hmm. kicks in, the auto industry is pretty uh, fairly well established. You note um, that by 29. Uh, there are 98,000 workers producing 1 million cars per year. Right. Yeah, I'd be happy to. So the book looks at the history of Detroit through the lens of environmental inequality, um, the sort of work developed by sociologists like Robert Bullard in his famous book, Dumping in Dixie. Um, And I examine sort of the making of environmental inequality along lines primarily of race and class, in Detroit from the Gilded Age to the present, and I identify three major periods. Basically, before the New Deal, um, during what scholars like Gary Gersel, who you referenced, have called the New Deal order from the 1930s to 1970s, and then what some call the neoliberal period since the late 70s, early 80s. 
So the period before the New Deal, what we might call the Long Gilded Age, is characterized, of course, by industrialization and urbanization. Detroit uh, grows massively both in land area and population between the 1890s and the 1920s. And it's demographically transformed. Um, in the late 19th century, you have a predominantly foreign-born um, working class, initially a lot of Irish and German and some Anglo and increasingly Polish Italian, uh, Russian, et cetera, people from Southern and Eastern Europe with the relatively small African-American population before World War I. Then, um, of course, you have the great migration of African-Americans to the urban North. The African-American population of Detroit grows from just over 5,000 to over 120,000 um, between 1910 and 1930. In terms of the environmental issues, you have basically unregulated industrial capitalism with some very weak municipal ordinances. Um, on the one hand, the factories and the railroads, but also the residential buildings are emitting increasing quantities of coal smoke, primarily bituminous coal, which, of course, uh, blankets the city with soot, causes uh, uh, respiratory problems. And in the factories, you have um, serious problems with occupational disease. You have lead poisoning. Uh, you have uh, other kinds of respiratory illnesses afflicting industrial workers. And there's a serious problem with tuberculosis in the city um, associated with overcrowded living conditions. And moreover, the city has no system of sewage treatment, no sewage treatment plant until 1940. Um, there is the introduction of chlorination in the progressive era. But because of the, the lack of uh, uh, a sewage treatment system, you have increasing pollution of the Detroit River. There are about 50 open sewers spewing raw sewage into the Detroit River, which flows into Lake Erie in Detroit by the turn of the century. And this, of course, causes waterborne diseases such as typhoid. Um, and there are a series of cholera epidemics in 19th century Detroit that are quite deadly as well. And all of this is racialized and it's correlated with ethnicity as well as class. So the victims of these unsanitary conditions are predominantly foreign-born immigrant workers in the 19th century. But in the teens and 20s, African-Americans increasingly replace immigrant European men as the workforce in the most dangerous sectors of the auto industry. So black men are primarily assigned to foundries where workers are exposed to thick clouds of silica dust and have high rates of silicosis and to paint shops where workers have high rates of lead poisoning. And then with regard to um, housing, African-Americans are basically barred by restrictive covenants and by white mob violence from living in all but a few overcrowded ghetto neighborhoods called Paradise Valley uh, and uh, Black Bottom, basically on the near east side, as it's called, of Detroit by the 1920s. Detroit has over 20,000 Ku Klux Klan members in the 20s. The rise of the so-called second KKK um, sort of uh, uh, occurs alongside the Great Migration. And in this respect, Detroit is similar to other northern cities. So you have hardening racial segregation, meaning African-Americans bear the brunt of overcrowded housing conditions which contribute, for example, to skyrocketing black death rates from tuberculosis and of unsafe conditions in the automobile industry. This is all before the Great Depression. Right, right. Thank you. Um, I will note, as you open the volume, you, you wrote, note the irony Detroit is near the center of the world's largest freshwater system, which, right. as we discuss, will become increasingly um, ironic. Uh, and just in my notes, uh, I noted, you note early in the volume, Detroit, the Detroit River is highly polluted by 2016. You noted there was no sewage treatment. A lot of this is really a, a 
primer for public health students. You mentioned typhoid, tuberculosis. The, the entire volume could be read as a history of lead poisoning in Detroit, which seemingly has persisted unabated for a century. Um, so it's, it's, um, it's a tough world. Um, you do note that the African-American population uh, just booms, and I'm looking here, by 2030, 100,000 uh, African-Americans had migrated uh, to uh, Detroit. So let's, let's go to the auto industry specifically. And you mentioned foundries. Um, mm-hmm. Working in the auto industry was, particularly if you were African-American, uh, was very dangerous. You mentioned um, uh, certain strains of tuberculosis, for example. But I did find interesting uh, the levels of pollutants used in the auto stream, causing work of harm, you you discussed this paints and lacquers, this duco lacquer used in, used mm-hmm. as a combustible. Um, it's sort of a minor chemistry lesson. The, the 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 foundry work, for example, you profiled the Dearborn foundry, iron foundry, and the cases of silicone tuberculosis, sort of off the chart. Uh, other lung diseases, shortened life expectancy. So give the listeners sort of an overview of. What what was what were the health harms um, resulting from uh, what aspects of the auto industry that say more prominent? Right. Yeah. So if you read um, the publications, both of the industry itself and industrial hygienists and the National Safety Council, but also the sort of labor press, you find descriptions of similar conditions. Um, so you know. The National Safety Council, for example, publishes reports in the 1920s where they describe, uh, you know, widespread lead poisoning amongst paint sprayers. This is also a period of rapid technological change. We have the introduction of the automatic spray gun mm-hmm. painting. So it's a similar story in different branches of the industry where basically the rise of mechanization um, and the introduction of the moving assembly line dramatically increases productivity. And, of course, this is associated with Fordism and Detroit is the first place where the moving assembly line is used to manufacture automobiles on a large scale, first in Highland Park, which is a kind of industrial suburb of Detroit. And then on a larger scale in the River Rouge plant, which the Ford Motor Company establishes uh, during World War One and becomes the world's largest factory in the 1920s. And in you know, the paint industry, you have a shift from hand painters where you have five or six skilled hand painters who who, you know, literally use brushes to paint the vehicle mm-hmm. to the introduction of these automatic sprayers. There's also an introduction of new kinds of paint, such as Duco, which was manufactured by DuPont. And basically, it was favored by automakers because it dried more quickly, right. and so you could speed up production. But it was also highly flammable and explosive. So, for example, there is a deadly fire in 1927 in Detroit mm-hmm. at the Briggs uh, 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 Motor Company, where um, basically there's an explosion caused by um, the ignition of tanks of this substance called pyroloxylin, which is used for the Duco spraying machines. And basically you have dozens of workers who are burned to death, virtually all of whom are African-Americans because black men were restricted to working in the paint shop and weren't allowed to work in other departments of the factory. So that's a typical example. But in the case of the foundries, you really have uh, half a century of, of, of high rates of occupational disease. There are decades of epidemiological studies showing that foundry workers have high rates of silicosis. 
The companies basically do nothing about this until the passage of the Occupational Safety and Health Act in 1970. And the reason is it's cheaper um, not to pay for the dust control, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Workers typically, there, there, there was one study I saw in the 1960s by the United Auto Workers Union's uh, foundry and forage department, where they estimated that only one in about 25 workers who got silicosis ever got any kind of workers' compensation. Usually what would happen is workers would uh, retire and they would get silicosis and often die in their 50s or 60s and never get any sort of compensation. You know, since you mentioned UAW, you uh, it was known to African-American workers. What was How did they uh, understand the acronym? Right. So the United Auto Workers Union um, comes out of the Congress of Industrial Organizations or the CIO, which is, of course, founded in 1935 um, in an effort to organize the unorganized and the, mm-hmm. these vast new mass production industries that had arisen um, in the first quarter of the 20th century. And, of course, unlike the old American Federation of Labor, which primarily organized on a craft basis and organized disproportionately white male skilled workers, the CIO made an effort to organize the unskilled, to organize immigrants, and to organize African Americans. Although they have an imperfect record on civil rights, the CIO was much more willing to organize African Americans than the old AFL had been. And the United Auto Workers comes out of the CIO, and it becomes a kind of cornerstone along with the United Steel Workers, United Rubber Workers, um, uh, or down here in the Gulf Coast, ultimately the the Oil Workers Union of this industrial union organizing drive. And they successfully organize you know, General Motors, Ford, and Chrysler through a series of really tough labor battles uh, beginning, uh, you know, in the mid-30s, and then successfully they've organized Ford by 1941. And then by the late 40s, the UAW has well over a million members and is this enormous industrial union. Right. Your your line, though, um, uh, relative to the uh, UAW, relative to an African-American's perspective, is UAW, you ain't white. Uh, as you noted. Well, that was that that was a protest chant by a group called the Dodge Revolutionary Union Movement, or DRUM, which was founded in 1968. And interestingly, um, DRUM was not only challenging the white uni- union officials, they were also challenging the older black UAW officials who they thought had not done enough on civil rights. And it points to the fact that the relationship between the UAW and African Americans is somewhat complex. Um Certainly, the UAW will be criticized by African Americans, um, you know, from the 1930s through the 1970s for not doing enough and in some cases outright colluding with (laughs) job discrimination. On the other hand, there are many African Americans who do attain real opportunities through the UAW. And I, I make a kind of a nuanced argument about both the UAW and the New Deal, which is to say that African Americans do benefit from unionization and they do benefit for many of the policies associated with the New Deal, but they do so less than whites because of racial discrimination in the auto industry and, of course, in housing. And and I relate that specifically to environmental injustices in the sort of middle third of the book. Right. So let's stay with that. So thank you for that. So let's stay with that because I did in some ways suggest that there was progress made under the imperfect New Deal order and then right. – uh, that trend was in the 70s, you know, usually formally associated with the uh, first uh, term of Ronald Reagan to the movement towards neoliberalism. So you do note in the volume um, the New Deal reform period, for example, 100,000 public uh, works jobs under the WPA, 
uh, there are housing agencies. However, there are imperfections, and I'll let you uh, describe pluses and minuses of, from uh, the, the period, basically, uh, Roosevelt's right. four or three-plus yeah, terms. So, um, so the Great Depression hits Detroit as hard as any major industrial city in the United States. About half the auto workers lose their job. The city is on the verge of bankruptcy in 1933 as Hoover is leaving office. Um, and the on the on the positive side, you know, the New Deal saves Detroit from bankruptcy. And I also point out in the book that, you know, there was a serious problem of mass home foreclosures, evictions of renters um, and utility shutoffs among the poor and the unemployed. And this is, of course, challenged by the unemployed councils organized by uh, communists and other radicals in the city both black and white, incidentally. But the New Deal saves Detroit from bankruptcy. As you said, it creates nearly 100,000 public works jobs. WPA workers and PWA workers, that is Public Works Administration and Works Progress Administration, Mm -hmm. uh, rebuild the city's infrastructure. So they put in new water and sewer pipes. They create roads, post offices. uh, They build parks. um, And they construct the city's first sewage treatment plant, which, among other things, makes it possible to finally eliminate typhoid. Um, also, um, the WPA and other New Deal policies help to bring down the rate of tuberculosis. Um, they, they construct hospitals um, under pressure from the labor movement. Labor legislation like the Wagner Act makes it possible to unionize the auto industry, which in turn makes it possible to negotiate union contracts that contain um, some fairly weak health and safety protections. But more significantly, from a public health standpoint, um, you know, health benefit plans. The UAW, for example, creates a union-run hospital in Detroit, and they actually treat workers with lead poisoning. Um, and, you know, the the New Deal housing agencies um, do end this sort of foreclosure crisis. Uh, the, the, the Homeowners Loan Corporation does buy up distressed mortgages and make it possible for people to refinance, including actually over 800 African-American families are able to refinance with the HLC. On the other hand, as, as we all probably know, and as you'll read in the books like Richard Rothstein's The Color of Law or Eric Katz Nelson's Fear Itself and this much larger literature that looks at the New Deal and race, uh, you know, New Deal policies are, are fundamentally um, compromised for African-Americans by racial discrimination. And this is, of course, related to the dominance of Southern Democrats in Congress uh, and the, the power of Southern Democrats um, over key congressional committees in blocking things like anti-lynching legislation and refusing to touch Jim Crow laws. And even in the urban north, um, the HOLC systematically redlines African-American communities and to a lesser extent immigrant uh, communities. And so in Detroit, um, over 90 percent of Detroit neighborhoods have been covered by these restrictive covenants. And the HOLC and then the FHA, um, the Federal uh, Housing Administration, incentivized the use of restrictive covenants until the Supreme Court strikes them down in 1948 with the Shelley v. Kramer case. And also, um, they, of course, redline or downgrade the credit of over 90% of neighborhoods in Detroit that have African-American residents. Now, this is not an unfamiliar story, and it's been covered by urban historians like David Freund and Thomas Segru. What I do in my book that's new, though, is I connect it to environmental inequality. I specifically show how Um, On the housing front, redlining meant that because African-Americans are excluded from the post-war home-building boom in the suburbs, so Detroit is ringed by over 16 suburbs with zero black homeowners Mm -hmm. by 1968, even though the city was about half African-American by that point. 
Because of that, African-Americans are trapped disproportionately in older housing, which is more likely to have lead paint. Um, it's called by epidemiologists the lead belt of the city. Um, mm-hmm. And you see a similar story in Baltimore, Chicago, Milwaukee, and other cities around the country where African-Americans are disproportionately concentrated in substandard housing, um, either, um, you know, having difficulty getting getting credit, uh, uh, you know, for property improvements or being able to shift from being renters to homeowners. And this contributes to much higher rates of lead poisoning for African-Americans than for, for whites in newer single-family homes in the suburbs. And then with regard to the auto industry, although African-Americans do experience increased wages and pension and fringe benefits from union contracts prior to the civil rights era, and especially the affirmative action era in the late 60s and early 70s, African-Americans are almost totally excluded from the skilled trades, which means they continue to get disproportionately dangerous lower wage jobs in the industry. And this, of course, means higher rates of occupational disease. I cite one uh, epidemiological study conducted of foundry workers um, in in uh, Detroit and Dearborn, Michigan, in the early 1970s, which found that you know the highest death rates from cancer and heart disease were among black men in the foundries. Although white men in the foundries also had high rates of, of disease, black men are concentrated in the more dangerous, unskilled and semi-skilled jobs in the cleaning and melting rooms in places like the Fort Rouge plant well into the 70s. And this is one of the reasons why you actually have falling life expectancy for black men in southeast Michigan in the decade of the 1960s, whereas life expectancy rose for all other groups that falls for black men. And some of that is about drug addiction and homicide, and some of it is about this kind of occupational ghettoization, which unfortunately unionization didn't dislodge. It really took you know, civil rights laws and affirmative action to finally begin to change mm-hmm. that. So I'll connect. So thank you for that. So I'll connect your, that comment. So maybe too crude a term, but African-Americans, because of, as you know, um, racist property appraisal, lending practices, redlining, restrictive covenants. It was like rereading Tahanishi Coates's piece in the yep. Atlantic, right, from Chicago. Um, they're basically herded. Um uh, and kept in certain communities, and not surprisingly, those communities became further compromised by related other policies. And that gets into, and I thought this was an interesting aside. There's so many subtopics here, so we don't have time for all of them. But I do want to bring up one that I thought particularly interesting, and this was the issue of waste to energy. This was the discussion you had about right. um, municipal incinerators. And you note particularly um, one that is bought, the city sells... Um, I guess in 91, it operates, I guess, till 2019. It's bought by a Philip Morris, I believe, subsidiary. But right. but just where this is located relative to where uh, African-American communities are predominant, uh, explain that. Um, and this was all about improving, presumably pursuing the financing for the city of Detroit, which, of course, uh, was on its way to bankruptcy uh, much later, though, in 1314. Right. Yeah. So um... – in the last third of the book, I argue that although African-Americans benefited less than whites from the New Deal order, both in economic and environmental terms because of discrimination, they suffered more than whites from the undoing of the so-called New Deal order um, since the, the so-called Volcker shock in the late 70s. Mm-hmm. And I, I use two case studies to illustrate this. One is this municipal incinerator that you mentioned, and another is um, a, a water crisis in the city that I assume we'll get to later. Yes, that might be so my next to take question. Up the, <laughs> to take up the incinerator case, so Detroit is similar to a number of communities 
in the 70s and 80s. You see something similar in all these cities where the first black mayors had been elected um, uh, in the previous decade. So, for example, incinerators are constructed in South Central Los Angeles um, under the mayorship of Tom Bradley. Um, you see it in Philadelphia under uh, Wilson Good. You see it in um, Camden, New Jersey under Randy Primus. And what these cities have in common is that as uh, the black population and the Latino population um, had increased, well, the white population had decreased because of out-migration to the suburbs after World War II, um, you also have deindustrialization, right? And many mm-hmm. of these cities are losing their tax base because of the relocation of uh, uh, capital, of, of, of factories, out to suburbs, rural areas, and ultimately overseas in search of cheaper labor, in search of non-union environments. Mm-hmm. And the auto industry is similar in this regard to a whole raft of other industries from electronics to steel um, to, to, to rubber and the like. Offshore, so right. Detroit, yes, yeah. Right. So Detroit has about 349,000 auto manufacturing jobs in 1950. It's whittled down to only around 23,000 by 2007. So as Detroit is losing its industrial tax base and as whites are moving to the suburbs and the black population is growing, you have the first black mayor elected, the city is facing a fiscal crisis. Um, the, the first black mayor, Coleman Young, who's in office from 1974 to 1994, has to find some kind of alternative investment to make up for the loss of factories, right? Mm-hmm. So he's he ends up kind of chasing these dirty industries. And like black mayors in other cities, I might have also added David Dinkins in New York City, who embraces an incinerator in Brooklyn around the same time. Um, you know, they, 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 they try to uh, attract investment by offering um, tax incentives to various kinds of industries. And at the same time, the incinerator industry is lobbying municipal governments, promising them that this new kind of incinerator, so-called waste-to-energy incinerators, which will generate electricity through steam power generated by burning mm-hmm. trash, are going to generate jobs and tax revenues. So to make a long story short, um, Detroit takes out uh, hundreds of millions of dollars in, in municipal debt from investment banks to construct this expensive incinerator that starts burning in 1989, and it's called the Greater Detroit Resource Recovery Facility. And at the time, it was the largest incinerator in the world, although there are are now larger incinerators in, I believe, Indiana and in China. Um, And basically, the city goes into a huge amount of debt. It goes over budget. It's resisted by environmental groups who clash with the mayor. Um, The incinerator constantly is violating environmental laws. It gets shut down at one point by the state of Michigan because it violates its environmental permits on mercury emissions. It also has illegally high emissions of dioxin, um, a a very potent carcinogen, and emits a lot of lead dust and particulate matter, uh, which and it's located in a predominantly black neighborhood on the east side of the city. Um, So the city is facing a major budget deficit by the early 90s for a combination of reasons, not only the incinerator. And the city is actually under pressure from bond rating agencies like Standard and Poor and Moody's to raise its bond rating by selling the incinerator. Um, and basically, in response to this fiscal crunch, the city sells the incinerator to financial subsidiaries of Philip Morris, the cigarette giant, and General Electric um, mm-hmm. in 1991. And the corporations are lured to buy the incinerator because they get tax breaks through an obscure loophole in Ronald Reagan's 1986 Tax Reform Act, which provides uh, basically um, tax breaks for investors in waste energy facilities. So the irony is that this firm, Philip Morris, which is you know famous for cancer-causing products, 
ends up getting $200 million in tax breaks for owning a facility which is emitting carcinogens and other pollutants over a predominantly poor black neighborhood in the city of Detroit for 17 years. Right. You can't make this up, as they would say. Um, right. Um, <laughs> let's go to uh, – I have to get to this, of course, because this is um, – um, in fact, it's, there's so much detail, great detail in this that I thought when I first picked up the volume, there would be more on the Flint water issue. But it, it's discussed, but in context of everything else, it's just one off of, yep. of numerous issues. So this is uh, – so Flint becomes part of the Detroit water system. Uh, however, the larger issue is these um, – uh, because of the financial uh, status of these uh, communities, they get these emergency managers. And you talk about uh, the de-democratization uh, uh, issues. Also, of course, unfavorable and disproportionately harming African minority communities. So the uh, emergency manager removes Flint from the Detroit Water Sewage Department in 13, and Flint's water gets converted to use of Flint River water which contains, and then we go through the chemistry lesson again, chlorides causing lead and copper to leach from water pipes within two years. And of course, once again, we're back to uh, epidemic levels of lead amongst other uh, health problems. Um, those are the details I think are probably generally known. But if you could talk about, again, how this happened in context of how mm -hmm. these communities began to be governed um, under African-American mayors, result in, in part because of 1314 bankruptcy, et cetera. Right. Yeah. So in earlier chapters in the book, I describe how Flint became part of the Detroit water system. And um, basically, the Detroit water system expands into the suburbs after World War II. Prior to the war, it had primarily served the city itself. But it expands uh, in part because um, under the leadership of the chief um, superintendent and engineer of the system, Gerald Remus, um, the Detroit pursues a kind of an expansionist policy, and this is driven by the sort of economics of regional utility price competition, where you have these sort of municipal water departments that are competing with suburban water departments. And if they expand and get more customers, they can keep their rates lower, which mm -hmm. in turn will make them more competitive. And they hope forestall population loss and disinvestment from the city. So Detroit expands out to provide water to all these smaller cities on its periphery, including Flint, Pontiac. They want to go all the way. To, to Ann Arbor so they, and even the capital, capital of Michigan, right. Lansing. Yeah. Right. But, but this is also a period when um, you know, suburban water systems are competing with cities, et cetera. So uh, to, to fast forward to the early 21st century, the, the water system of Detroit was really designed for a city that planners thought was going to have close to 2 million people. But Detroit ends up having only about 750,000 people by the end of the 20th century because of the factors we discussed earlier. So the system is overbuilt relative to its customer base, and that creates upward pressure on water rates. And that in turn creates an impetus for certain cities to leave the Detroit system in the early 21st century. Now, Flint also is facing a fiscal crisis for reasons similar to Detroit. Flint also is a black majority city, although it has a larger white population than Detroit does. Uh, I think it's over 35% white or so uh, in the early 21st century. Um, so Flint also loses its industrial base because of the closing of GM factories and also white flight to the suburbs of Genesee County. Um, and there are also other factors in Flint's decision to leave the water system. For example, there were a variety of actors who wanted to construct this pipeline out to Lake Huron. We don't have to go into that. Uh, but long story short, both the cities are facing fiscal crises. And 
the the governor of Michigan, Rick Snyder, um, appoints these officials called emergency managers. And under um, Michigan's emergency manager laws, municipalities that are facing a fiscal crisis or school boards, for that matter, that are facing a fiscal crisis can be taken over by the state. The state can bring in officials who are unelected and who have almost dictatorial powers to privatize sell-off city departments, to break union contracts with municipal workers. Um, and they can even do things like lock uh, uh, members out of city hall. Uh, they can freeze email accounts for, for city workers um, and do virtually whatever they want. So Rick Snyder appoints emergency managers to Flint um, starting in 2011, I believe. Um, and you have a series of emergency managers who make the decision to switch over uh, from the Detroit water system to Flint, but they also cut costs on this logic of austerity. So for example, um, they, they outsource most of the water treatment work in Flint to these private contractors uh, for a firm called Lockwood, Andrews and Newnham. And as we often see with private contractors, they seek to cut corners and they do substandard work. Um, and this leads to the Flint water crisis in many ways because they don't perform uh, you know, corrosion control up to the standards of EPA regulations. And uh, this, of course, leads to the failure to add corrosion controls to the water and the leaching of the copper and lead, et cetera. Now, while this is happening in Detroit, you also have um, the kind of meltdown of the city's economy in the context of the subprime foreclosure crisis. About a third of the properties in Detroit go into foreclosure between 2005 and 2015. The city has the highest rate of subprime mortgage foreclosures in the United States. And what I really seek to show in chapter eight of my book is how the water crisis in Detroit and Flint is inseparable from financial deregulation and the marketing of adjustable rate subprime mortgages by, by these uh, sort of mega banks, uh, you know, Wells Fargo, Bank of America, et cetera, mm -hmm. but also the marketing of uh, toxic derivative products like interest rate swaps to the city government, including Detroit's water department, which lead to basically runaway debt. So Detroit is experiencing this mass foreclosure crisis, which radically contracts its already shrunken tax base. Also, the state of Michigan um, and the the and Wayne County, where Detroit is located, refused to adjust tax assessments um, to reflect the fallen property values after 2008. And this means that um, homeowners are being assessed uh, uh, property taxes as if their properties were still worth $100,000, but many of these houses are only worth about twenty, thirty thousand dollars rock bottom property values, tax assessments that people can't afford to pay, leading to over 100,000 tax foreclosures alone in the city in the same period. So as the city is losing its tax base even more sharply um, in the aftermath of 2008, the city is ratcheting up its water rates. And in addition to contributing to Flint leaving the system, this also leads to a skyrocket, skyrocketing of water service disconnections. So the city begins shutting off water for people who owe any more than $150 or who are more than two months in arrears to the city water department. As a result of that, over 250,000 people have their water shut off in the city of Detroit uh, between 2014 and 2019. And so you have about a third of the city's population forced to live without running water for extended periods of time. So it gets so bad that the United Nations Human Rights uh, uh, Council in 2014 condemn the city's water shutoff policies as a violation of human rights. So while Flint is experiencing this mass water poisoning under emergency management, 
Detroit is also placed under emergency management in 2013. The emergency manager, Kevin Orr, in addition to filing bankruptcy for the city, ratchets up the water shutoff policy. And so while Flint is experiencing this kind of mass water poisoning, Detroit is experiencing mass water shutoffs. So you have hundreds of thousands of people who either have no water at all, no running water in their homes, or have poison water pumped into their homes. Um, and in Detroit, you actually have a combination of both because the emergency managers also um, outsource much of the maintenance work in the city's school system to private contractors. And this leads to um, uh, basically rapid dilapidation of the buildings and they're increasingly um, uh, lead contamination problems in the w water supplies of the Detroit public schools. Um, and actually, the, the lead poisoning problem in Detroit is even worse than in Flint. Uh, it was estimated in 2017 that the rate of child lead poisoning in Detroit was twice as high as in Flint. Um, it was over 8% of the city's children had elevated blood lead levels. Now, this is actually not caused primarily um, by the water uh, the, the water supply, and this is actually a misconception in the review in the New York Review of Books. Um, it's actually caused primarily by uh, exposure to lead in homes and lead dust from home demolitions. demolitions That's another yes. story. Yes. <laughs> yeah, but but there is a serious problem with lead contamination in the water supplies in the city schools. Um, and I, I want to just add one more thing. This problem is also exacerbated by welfare reform. Uh, prior to 2001, um, in the state of Michigan, if you were on uh, uh, the so-called TANF program, which is the successor to Aid to Families of Dependent Children, uh, created under welfare reform in 1996 by President Clinton, you could get uh, utility assistance from the state of Michigan to prevent having your water, gas, your electricity turned off. But that's eliminated as part of Michigan's welfare reform by the Republican Governor John Engler in 2001. And that contributes directly to an escalation of shutoffs. So what, what you have by the early 21st century is a situation where over a third of the Detroit's population is living below the poverty line. And there are basically no protections, no social safety net to prevent those people from losing access to something as fundamental as running water if they're unable to pay their bills. And you have a city government, which is under increasing debt and under pressure to implement harsh austerity measures. And then with the imposition of emergency management, you have the imposition of austerity with no democratic checks and balances. And it leads directly to these public health disasters in Detroit and Flint. Right. So you say um, this dehydration effect, not surprisingly, yields greater instances of water-associated illnesses yes. or diagnoses. And of course, then here comes long COVID. And then, of right. course, you see the disproportionate harm COVID has on minority populations, morbidity right. and mortality. So exactly. it's just it's 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 an unbelievable constellation of, of variables or factors. Um, you did touch upon uh, demolitions leading to lead poisoning. Uh, you do use the phrase radicalized accumulation by dispossession, uh, which I thought was... I think I said racialized. Right, excuse me, racialized. Right, I'm sorry, racialized. Yeah. Um, so it's it, it's really a constant... You, you, again, you can't make this up. It's just amazing uh, the combination of, of adverse forces all coming uh, to bear at, at a, in a, over a short period of time. Well, I... I'm sorry, go I, ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay, so just to explain my use of that term, um, it might sound like academic jargon, but what I'm getting at with that phrase is that while you have um, you know, over 100,000 home foreclosures, while you have a quarter million people forced to live without running water, 
you do have a few people who benefit tremendously from what's going on in right. Detroit. And in particular, Quick this and guy, Dan Gilbert, <laughs> yeah, he, he is a billionaire whose fortune increased uh, uh, over sevenfold during the COVID pandemic. He's now something like the 16th richest person in the United States. Uh, so he, he goes from having, you know, five or six billion to over 50 billion. And this guy owns much of downtown Detroit. He spends billions of dollars buying up skyscrapers. He bragged that after 2008, the property value crash had created the conditions for a skyscraper sale, right? So he could just buy up all these uh, uh, properties in downtown Detroit on the cheap. Um, and he himself is involved in the foreclosure crisis because uh, his firm, Quicken Loans, sold hundreds of fraudulent FHA mortgages in Detroit after 2008. And actually, there was an investigation by the Justice Department, excuse me, before 2008. There was an investigation by the Justice Department under Obama, which found that, you know, Quicken Loans had a culture of basically encouraging um, um, lending without properly checking the background uh, of, of home buyers because they knew the federal government would essentially cover their, their debts if a homeowner uh, defaulted on the mortgage. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, people like Gilbert benefit tremendously from, from what's going on. And, you know, the the home foreclosure crisis creates the opportunity for accumulation for a small number of people. And I also include people uh, like uh, the late Mike Illich and his wife, Marion Illich, um, as well as a guy named John, John Hans, who is the largest bulk buyer of foreclosed homes in the city of Detroit. Um, he's worth, I think over a hundred million dollars. So there are a small number of these kind of billionaires and uh, mega wealthy speculators who really make a killing um, on on the collapse in property values in Detroit, but you have real suffering for the poorest third to half of the city's population. Right. So the phrases, of course, predatory lending, vulture capitalism, and others uh, yep. come to mind. I, I I did find it when you discussed the Wayne County Treasurer's Office refusal to adjust tax assessments uh, lower. Uh, that that one was news to me. I I I have to say I found that. Uh, despite all this, still a little uh, surprising. So with that, uh, we're at our time. Uh, really, a lot of ground covered. There's so much more here. Um, you know, you do touch upon the Kerner Commission report in 68, uh, Johnson's views opposed to Nixon. So at the federal level, there's a, there's a whole other dimension uh, we didn't get uh, much time to get into. But I do uh, thank you for a very time-efficient overview of a very substantive work, uh, well done, well explained. So, uh, well, so if you have a final comment, I'm, I'm happy to uh, uh, welcome it. I just want to thank you for bringing me on and thank you for the excellent work that you do. This is a fantastic podcast, and I really love the way that you connect issues of public health, medicine, healthcare in general with economics and, and social justice. I think it's extremely important to make these connections. Yeah, we need to do a better job is not surprisingly my view about uh, efforts in D.C., so I appreciate that comment. So with that, I wish you all the success with this book and your next efforts. Thanks, David. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.